Which U.S. state capital sits atop a dormant volcano? Jeez, and what musical group has the most addictive songs? And who determined that? Science. Oh, answers <laughs> to those and other science questions coming up in this half hour of the Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. So we start off this episode with two science questions, and yours involves music. Well, scientists have determined through various metrics, uh, certain songs are just more catchy or addictive than other songs. And uh, they use all sorts of different uh, criteria for that. But there's one group that has three out of the top six catchiest, most addictive songs of all time. By scientists who love music, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Using, like I said, scientific metrics. They've come up with different rhythms and okay. things like that. So just what group do you think has? The most addictive. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to... I'm just going to bet, because they've been in the news again lately, that it's the uh, folks who are now in their 70s and 80s, but ABBA. ABBA. Yeah. Yeah. Because no. those are very catchy tunes. Yeah, they whether are. Whether you liked them or not, because yeah. I remember playing them over and over and again over, in oh, radio. Well, you had no choice. That's but, right. Okay. And Barry Manilow, same thing. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, this isn't any of that. Okay, well, who are they? These are songs that, uh, that I totally agree with. Are Queen. they from our era? Yes. Okay. Queen. Oh. oh. Number one. We will rock you. Okay. Totally yes. interactive. Totally just gets everybody involved. It is. It's interactive. It's addictive. Yes. Number three was We Are the Champions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And number six was A Night at the Opera. Wow. Those, those three songs uh, captured the top ten of just the most addictive uh, songs and the catchiest and it just had met all the criteria. Number two, you like this one, Happy. Oh, yes. Yeah. Farrell Williams. Duh, duh, I, I can't. That was a great song. Yes. We still like that. Where are the scientists from who did this? University of St. Andrews. Oh, in Scotland. The team of researchers invented a formula to determine which songs are the biggest earworms by judging tunes on five different metrics. And this was back in 2016, a whole group of scientists, and they came up with this list. Can you imagine them coming out humming from the science rooms? <laughs> <laughs> We've got the answers now. We've got the formula. Uh -huh. Wow, that's interesting. Well, and, you know, some people would say the Beatles had that same kind of thing. A lot of their tunes were were very much uh, uh, sing-songy and fun to sing. Um, I'm thinking of by, with a little help from my friends and Yellow Submarine and some of those that were kind of childlike. So, Yes, I uh, think of them more childlike, whereas Queen, to me, is definitely more engaging and uh, you get into it more. <laughs> You I'm sorry, it, did, did you, I stick my tongue out yeah. there? Okay. <laughs> they can't see you, but so you're, childlike. So, you're such a child. I'm just being a child. <laughs> okay, now here's my question, uh -huh. Marcia. All right, my question is a scientific one, too. Which U.S. state capital sits atop a dormant volcano? Doesn't sound good. Okay, <laughs> volcano. I bet uh, the 200,000 people that live there, many of them don't know this. Well, is that, uh, is that we're talking perhaps Pacific Northwest? I'll give you some cities. You tell me which one it is. Thank you, Bob. Helena, Montana. Yeah. Jackson, Mississippi. Uh -huh. Salem, Oregon. Uh -huh. Olympia, Washington. Uh, it's Olympia or Helena. I'll say Olympia. No. It's it, Helena. No. It's... it's <laughs> 
Believe it or not, it's Jackson, Mississippi. Say what? You wow. would not think that Jackson, Mississippi would be located over a dormant volcano, but it's known as the Jackson Volcano. It was discovered in the early 19th century. It's believed to be 70 million years old and has been dormant for the better part of its existence. The volcano lies 2,900 feet below the surface of Jackson. And it's not the only volcano within the limits of a U.S. city. Portland has Mount Tabor in Oregon. Bend, Oregon is home to Pilot Butte. And Honolulu, Hawaii is home to Diamond Head. But did you know that there are other volcanoes, dormant volcanoes, east of the Mississippi? I didn't know this. I always think of them in the Rockies. So you got this one. You've got one off of the coast of Louisiana, and you've got one in Virginia. None of those are expected to be active at any time, but those are also volcanoes. Okay. So Jackson, Mississippi, 2,900 feet above a volcano. All right, Bob. Remember that futuristic movie, Salient Green? Yes, yes. It was 1973 it came out. You know what the point of that movie was? Remember what it, what the green was? The green was actually people. Yeah. <laughs> they were, they were, because they, they, people were being sold this, uh, this is even more nutritious than real, yes, real yes. food. It's and, like uh, a, it's like a nutrient tablet, only it was, it was. Uh, made up of population that was being ground up. Yeah. You didn't learn that till the end of the film. That's no. a spoiler. So we just, yeah, we did. So, okay. So here's the question. What year was that movie set in? It was futuristic. Oh, was that set in like the year 2000 or something like that? 2022. Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. Did you take your vitamin this morning, Robert? (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) That was the last film of a famous American actor who played gangsters in the 30s and 40s. That was the last movie he was in. And his name is? Edward G. Robinson. Edward Trey. Yeah, Trey. <laughs> yeah, really. He was. That was his Take last pill, film. Trey. He died a few days well, what, after that film. What part did he play? He a played, good guy I think, or a bad scientist guy? or oh, something. Oh yeah. So yeah. He, usually he's the bad guy. He was on. I think he was on his deathbed in the movie. As a matter of fact. Oh but really? I think that was a Charlton Heston film. I was in it. I believe he was. The, was it? He was the hero, of course, who discovered that the. Damn you to hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite. That is my favorite line from uh, what is the movie? Um, uh, the monkey movie. The monkey movie. Planet of the Apes. That's it. <laughs> damn you out of hell! <laughs> yeah, that was great. Okay, Marcia, what do U.S. and Canadian currency have in common? They're the only two countries in the world that have this. What uh, do U.S. and Canadian currency have in common? Lots of debt. No, Marsh, that's not the answer. (laughs) I don't know. They're the only two major currencies with the same size bills, no matter what the denomination is. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's true. I think about European bills. and Most other countries differentiate their larger and smaller value bills by size Ah. to help the visually impaired. Oh. Uh, For example, the larger denominations in Australia are taller and wider. They also have contrasting colors. Euros do this, too. Canadian dollars do have tactile marks in the upper right corner of the bills, but really, and they're colored differently to huh. aid the visually impaired. But the size of Canadian paper bills are the same regardless of value, just like American paper bills. So close your eyes, and a one dollar bill feels the same as a hundred dollar bill. I'll be darned. I didn't. However, I did. <laughs> you always have a little extra. A proposed new ten dollar bill might change all that. It would be the first paper money to feature tactile markings, so okay. that you can well, actually, that makes sense. like the blind, could yes. feel what what's this? Yeah, yeah. Well, that makes sense. I don't want to give away too much money here. The Pan American Highway, Bob. You ever hear of it? You know what it is? Yes, I do. What is it? It is a highway that 
starts in Canada, but actually goes all the way to the tip of South America. Well, close. It starts in Alaska and ends in Argentina. That's close. <laughs> it is. You, <laughs> By thousands of miles. <laughs> 29,000 miles long. Wow. That's how long it is. So, you know, if you're going to bicycle that one, you better... Take a lot of water bottles. And it's kind of an unofficial highway because it's not all connected together. There are places where you have to go off and come on to other roads There's and so forth. There's only really one gap. Oh, really? Where is it? It's in Panama in a remote swath of jungle. Hmm. Uh, dense rainforest with poisonous snakes. And, oh, God. Uh, it's just got everything. So setting for a Tarzan movie. Well. Do they have quicksand, too? Do they have quicksand? <laughs> <laughs> Our biggest fear as children. No, and until recently, nobody hardly ever went into it because that many came out. But now, thousands of Haitians are cutting through the gap on foot to get to America. Oh, my. Heading north. Yeah. Oh, dear. Haitians going going from the little island over to this gap to, yeah. oh, man, yeah. that's just sad, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, Marcia, here's something that's gotten lost in the wake of space tourism and private businesses sending rockets into space. For nine years, American astronauts had to rely on Russia's Soyuz rockets to get to the International Space Station. We did? Yeah. You oh. didn't know that? I didn't know exclusively. Well, we had to because that was after President Obama closed down the space shuttle program. There's no way to get there. So we had to go up there sending our astronauts on Russian rocket ships. So now the question is, how much did those trips cost? You mean we paid them for we the We paid Russia for, for the transportation. Seats, just like if you want to get on the seat on uh, Jeff okay. Bezos's I'll uh, say a million rocket. a seat. Million dollars a seat. No. Each seat costs NASA seventy to a hundred million dollars. Oh. So that's like what they're charging yeah. now. So that's the only way we could get there until folks like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos built their private spaceship systems. And seventy to, you know, a hundred million, that's what they're charging space tourists now. So basically Russia charges us the same amount of money. Maybe they set the bar, you know. <laughs> Maybe it only cost a million, but uh, that's what we were spending to send our astronauts to space and we were paying Russia. At least we're paying American companies yeah, now. Yeah, that's, so. that's the good side of yeah. it. Let's go to another era of exploration. Who was this great explorer? He was a soldier of fortune. He was sold into slavery while fighting in Turkey with the Christians of Eastern Europe. He was a known womanizer, and he preferred blondes. <laughs> Who was he? Famous name in history. Famous explorer. Okay, he was one of my relatives. <laughs> I don't know that. <laughs> Captain John Smith. Oh. <laughs> we just think of him being here and in Jamestown and this and that, but yeah. he was really a worldwide mercenary. He's described as having lopped off the head of more than one Turkish soldier while fighting in Eastern Europe. He was captured and sold into slavery and escaped by bashing in the head of his master. Long before he made it to New England, John Smith escaped to Russia, where he fell in love with a blonde Russian woman. And although he was a swashbuckler and a braggart, his maps of North America's Atlantic coast were among the finest ever drawn. Mm -hmm. And it's believed that the heads of the English universities at Cambridge and Oxford might have offered him academic honors if he hadn't been so flamboyant. He was difficult. Mm -hmm. He's described as swaggering about London in silver armor and a full-length fox cape carrying on open affairs with young blonde ladies of ill repute. As for Pocahontas saving his life, that's a story he made up about the Indian princess after she married an Englishman and had become a favorite of the royal family. 
Hmm. He's not the kind of man history portrayed him to be at all. No. I just... like it. He's one of my relatives. <laughs> <laughs> he was a playboy. But, man, what an interesting guy. And he'd been all over the place. Yeah. Russia, Turkey, what became the United States? Fascinating. Okay, Bob, let's get serious. Why don't penguins' feet freeze? Why don't penguins' feet freeze? Yeah, you know, they're all standing on ice. They're little... Their little feet. I assume they have pads that they stand on that insulate their body no, from. No, no, no. no. Okay. Uh, they their feet don't freeze because they wear moccasins. A penguin moccasins. Little, little moccasins. Little moccasins. Could be. Yeah. yeah. With, little, with little beaks at the end of the moccasin. Like, <laughs> no. Little bird beak. Bird beak. No. Yeah, okay. No. It turns out they can control the blood flow to their feet, and they also have a system of blood vessels that reduces heat loss from their bodies. Mm. These both help keep their feet within a few degrees above freezing. Wow, uh, it's still cold. Yeah, it is, but it stops them from sticking to the ice. Mm. So I thought, So it's capillaries, uh, blood vessels? It's... Yeah, they have feathers and a fat layer on their body, so they're not exposed to icy winds so much. But that's not just their feet, that's their whole body. So, And can they freeze to death? The answer is yes, they can. Yes. Oh, really? Tell yeah. me about that. They can freeze to death if they are waterlogged and the temps drop below freezing. So, yeah, if they're all wet or been in rain and it drops real, they can freeze to death. All right, let's just talk about libraries and books, okay? This is just a kind of little odd fact. What's the most checked out book in the history of the New York Public Library? Somebody asked this in December of this year, and the New York Times the just mentioned it. The most checked out book. The okay. most checked out book in the history of the New York Public Library. Mm. You might think it would be a very, very important knowledge book, but books, it's not. scholarly it's, book. No. It's, it's not a novel, is it? No. It's, it's a children's a, book. It's a children's book. Good night, Moon. The answer was The Snowy Day, a 1962 children's book by Ezra Jack Keats. Now, it's hard to believe that. A 60-year-old book would be the most checked out in the Internet age. Really? Wonder what the wonder what the secret to that book is. That, oh, that's lovely. Makes yeah. me want to read it. I got a riddle for you, Bob. Okay. Okay. If you have just two coins that total 30 cents and one of them isn't a nickel, what coins do you have in your hand? Two coins that total 30 cents and one of them isn't a nickel? Right. Two coins, not three coins. Right. Well, give me the answer. Uh, a quarter and a nickel, because you got another hand. That, <laughs> <laughs> that nickel is in the other hand. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, gosh. Just a trick question, huh? It's a riddle. Uh, it's a riddle. All right. All right. I, I have a question for you here, okay? Mm -hmm. What does the word et cetera mean? You know, these are there are words that we use all the time. And so on? And et cetera. Yeah, what does it mean? And so on? It's actually two words, et cetera, and it means and the other things or and the rest. It's In Latin? A, yeah. It's okay. a fancier way of saying and so on. Mm -hmm. But if, if it says and so on, why abbreviate it? I mean, does that make any sense? <laughs> oh, it's still too much. Et, et cetera. <laughs> it's ETC. Okay. Okay, Bob. Thanks to modern science and carbon dating, scientists have been able to date more things. Like the longest living vertebrae known to science right now is the Greenland shark. Really? Oh, the yeah. Greenland shark? Yeah. It, it can be found off the coast of... Uh, Greenland, some, apparently. So how old is it? What it's it? five years old. <laughs> I don't know, 5,000 years old? Well, I A don't million know. years old? 
it's alive, Bob. Oh, this wasn't made clear to me. Okay. You're asking how long does this animal live? Well, they've captured some, and now they can carbon date it and see how old it is. How old is it? 500 years old. Wow. Some of the, some some of the ones they have caught. That means some of these fish that they've caught were born in the 1500s. That is just amazing. And they also have a very slow metabolism and it really moves very slow, like 1.8 miles an hour. That's hard to believe. That yeah. this We're not talking about a tree that stands still. We're yeah, talking no, about we're an, talking animal an animal that swims yeah. and yeah. has been around for 500 years. Yeah. Individual sharks, the and, Greenland shark. And they're not thought to reach sexual maturity until they're over a century old. <laughs> okay, we don't, we don't need to talk about that. Let's not get how into that. They, how did they figure Let's that out? Let's not get into that awkward age, <laughs> that awkward centennial age. Of those sharks. Wow. Okay, Marcia, how did the moon help Christopher Columbus feed his men when they had run out of food? How did he help feed his when they ran out of food? How did the moon... Oh, the moon. ...help Christopher Columbus feed his men when they ran out of food? Well, that's a puzzlement. This uh, was on his fourth voyage to the New World in 1504, about the time <sighs> that shark was born, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Bob How Christopher Columbus's crew of 116 men was marooned in Jamaica, and uh, this was the winter of 1504. The last of their leaky ships had given out. One of the men set out to get uh, help in a dugout canoe, and while he was gone, the Indians on the island refused to give the Spanish food. But Columbus warned them God would show the Indians he was displeased on the 28th day of February because Columbus knew that was the date an eclipse of the moon was going to occur. And when it did, whew, the Indians were terrified now, of here's the some darkness. Corn, here's some corn, white men. <laughs> At once they supplied the Spanish with the food they needed. Always helpful to know these facts of nature when yeah. you are an explorer in a, yeah. a you know kind of unsophisticated place. Well, that moon is going to be disappearing. Yeah. You are going to be in trouble. <laughs> Don't mess with me, baby. <laughs> You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. We're back with Bob and Marsha Smith with some movie quote questions that Marsha has. It's movie time, award shows, and uh I've gone to American Film Institute before for famous quotes, and here's some more, okay? Okay, right. Actually, it's the 95 to 100 of their top quotes. You've seen all these movies, so I'll give you the quote, you give me the movie. Okay. Okay. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. That was from uh, Summer Camp, wasn't it? Uh, no, I don't <laughs> I don't know what movie that was from. Is that from, uh, what's the one that Mel Gibson was in? What no, was that? No, it was Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society. Ah, okay. You saw that. Oh, it's been so long ago. Yeah, it's, it has been. Oh, here's this one you'll remember. Snap out of it. Oh, that's uh, that's Cher. Yeah. What was that movie? Um, the Moon, what's it called? It's Moonstruck. A, Moonstruck, yes. Yeah. <laughs> she did that to, what was it, Nicolas Cage yeah. at this real big, yeah. big moment where yeah. cause his hand was injured or something well, like that? Well, he was feeling or? sorry for himself because he was missing a hand. And she finally <laughs> said, snap out of it. We love that scene. Yeah. Okay. All right. This one, I'll be curious to see if you get. My mother thanks you, my father thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you. God, that sounds so familiar. It is, isn't it? Very no, old, huh? Very old, before you were born. Wow. But I, you've seen the movie. I can't remember where it came from, though. It's 
James Cagney in Yankee Doodle Dandy. Oh, okay. <laughs> he played uh, George M. Cohen. George M. Cohen, yeah, and, right, that's right. And that's what he would say at the end of his shtick. You oh, know? is that right? My mother thanks you, my father thanks you. Next quote. Okay, nobody puts baby in a corner. Oh, that was from um, the Dirty Dancing movie, oh, wasn't it? Did. Yes, yeah. you got it. Yeah. I, Johnny Castle, played by Patrick Swayze. Yeah. I love that name. His Johnny Castle. Nobody puts baby in a corner. <laughs> oh, this you'll never get. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. <laughs> oh, that's Margaret Hamilton in The Wizard of Oz right. as the Wicked Witch of the West. Yes. I'll <laughs> get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. <laughs> I just can't laugh like she did. Yeah. <laughs> I used to be able to do that. Yeah, but you do her pretty well. Okay, last one. Number 100 on their quote list. I'm king of the world. So this is the one with the ship that went down, the famous ship. What famous ship? The Titanic. (laughs) Very good. Yeah. It was Jack Dawson, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes, I'm king of the world. Very good, Bob. You got most of them. Speaking of words, here's evidence that words matter. Words make people do things, particularly when they're in stories. So what did readers do when Sir Arthur Conan Doyle said he was not going to use words to talk about Sherlock Holmes anymore, and he killed off his detective. What did the readers do? Well, they, they, they stopped. They, I know they revolted. Yes, they rebelled. 20,000 people canceled their subscriptions to the Strand magazine. Yeah, wow. So when he killed off Sherlock Holmes, he almost killed off the magazine that his stories were appearing in. Wow. They were so upset they canceled their subscriptions. 20,000 people. Did the Strand get him to start writing it again? or They what? published a lot of other people, too. I know. Eight years later, he needed a strong character for a story about a ghostly hound he was writing. <laughs> so he brought back Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes for the Hound of the Baskervilles. And that was published in the Strand from 1901 to 1903. And their magazine circulation shot up by 30,000 readers then. Wow. I bet you they were thrilled. And the Strand continued to publish Sherlock Holmes stories until 1927. And I said it also published H.G. Wells. It published Winston Churchill and even Queen Victoria. They wrote articles for the Strand magazine. All right. Now, one more question about Arthur Conan Doyle. What kind of a doctor was he? Because he was a doctor before he became the writer of Sherlock Holmes. I don't know, gynecologist. No, no, no. <laughs> he was an ophthalmologist. Ah. He started an ophthalmology practice in London, but when no patients showed up, he began writing to kill the time. Oh, no <laughs> kidding. And that's how he became an author. I'll be darned. And then he, uh, you know, he kind of modeled Sherlock Holmes after a professor he had in medical school. Okay. He could always detect oh, what people's illnesses were by, detect, by the uh, clues, you Yeah. Know? Oh, that is very cool. And what a successful formula that was. It still is to this day used constantly. It's amazing. Okay, Bob. In people, fingerprints are unique, and no two people have the same. What singularity distinguishes Holstein cows from one another? (laughs) (laughs) Their hoof prints are different. Their tails are different. Their spots are different. Ah, their black and white spots. No two cows have the same pattern. Well, how about that? (laughs) This is Wisconsin, Bob. This is Wisconsin trivia. (laughs) Let's go go out for a drive tomorrow and test that. Let's not go down that road. (laughs) No, let's not do that. I got some more questions about uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. What animals did he help popularize that people had never been talking about before? Well, this is from a 1912 science fiction novel he wrote. Oh, oh, he wrote, uh, what was it? The Lost World. Okay. And what was that about? 
Dinosaurs. Yes, he popularized dinosaurs. That was the first <laughs> science fiction novel about human beings interacting with dinosaurs. And it's about an expedition to a place deep in the Amazon where prehistoric creatures survived. I thought it was a great book. I read it when I was in grade school. Uh, isn't that what uh, the movie is based on? The Well, Michael Crichton borrowed the title, yeah. The Lost World, for his 1995 novel, which became the Jurassic Park yeah. movie. Yeah. At the time of Conan Doyle's Lost World, the term dinosaur was less than 200 years old and never appeared in a story before. What, how did they refer to them? Well, scientists and so forth knew oh. about it, but he took it and turned it into, what if they existed when people existed? What if they still Still exists somewhere. Oh, what a fast. And this, this is a guy who did Sherlock Holmes, but I think he had a great imagination yes. you know, about with he other things. He wrote this before Sherlock or after? After. This is 1912. Okay. Did you know he gave James Bond a tagline? What tagline did he give James Bond? Bond. James Bond. No. When he got his medical degree, he drew a funny sketch of himself receiving his diploma with the caption, License to Kill. Oh, jeez. And then Ian Fleming borrowed that for James Bond as a serious title for oh. the spy. Oh. Most people don't know that connection. Okay, Bob, where does the term whipping boy come from? Oh, whipping boy. You're just a whipping boy. Yeah. Uh, that is actually because very rich people at one point, for their punishment, if they were accused of a crime and they were guilty of it, they would actually be able to hire people to take their punishment <laughs> on, and they were whipping boys. They, uh, yeah, uh, Something like that, something. isn't it? Well, this is a little more specific. A whipping boy was a boy educated alongside a prince or a boy monarch in early modern Europe, and they received corporal punishments for the prince's transgressions. Same thing in, I said then. In his presence, yeah. yeah. For example, as a prince, King Edward VI had a whipping boy named Barnaby Fitzpatrick, poor Fitz, who was beaten every time the prince misbehaved during lessons. Remember, I had a boss, Barclay Fitzpatrick. <laughs> that was his whipping boy, I think. Oh, but, oh Wow, so. that's interesting. Yeah, oh, poor Barnaby. God, just, yeah, I'd sit there and pray that the prince didn't do it anything stupid. The prince probably did things just to get just the whipping get boy the, whipped. Yeah. Oh, that's so awful. It is. God. Huh. Okay. Two more Arthur Conan Doyle facts here. Okay. What sport did he help popularize? Bowling. No, <laughs> not bowling. This uh, is uh, something he took up when he went in uh, Switzerland. He moved skiing. to Davos. Skiing, yes. He began writing about skiing. He was the first English-speaking author to document the thrill of skiing. You let yourself go, he said, getting as near to flying as any earthbound man can. And he correctly predicted that in the future, hundreds of Englishmen would come to Switzerland for the skiing season. So it became popular because he, he worked at it. Also, he was good at cricket. During one game, though, he set himself on fire. Oh, how, you want to explain that, Lucy? Yeah. Okay, I'll do it like Desi Arnaz. He went up to bat, a pitch hit him in the thigh, striking a box of matches he had in really? his pocket, and he set himself on fire. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. And Doyle used to laugh about that, too, yes. how odd that accident was that yeah. broke the matches open, set his pocket on fire. He's yeah. like, looked down and went, what is, oh, my God, oh God I'm, I'm on, on fire. fire. All right. All right. Okay. So there's some questions on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. All right. This time of year, we honor Martin Luther King. And here is one of his many inspirational quotes. If you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But by all means, keep moving. All right. And we'll be moving on right now. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us with more trivia next time here on The, the Off-Ramp. Ramp.
OffRamp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.